Join the Wall Street Journal's Tech Live Cybersecurity on June 6, 2024, in New York City, to be at the forefront of shaping the future of cybersecurity and creating a more secure digital landscape. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. The House impeachment inquiry into Hunter Biden's business dealings continues with interviews of a business partner and Joe Biden's brother. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court declines to take a case on racial motives in admissions to a Virginia magnet school. Welcome. I'm Kyle Peterson with The Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues, columnists Kim Strassel and Bill McGurn. The Republican House of Representatives voted on party lines in December to open this impeachment inquiry into President Biden and his alleged ties to Hunter Biden's lobbying and influence peddling business. And on Wednesday, the man in the hot seat was the president's younger brother, James Biden. Kim, my understanding is we don't have the full transcript of that yet, but let's give a sense of what the read in the room was. This is Congressman James Comer on Sean Hannity giving his takeaway. Well, we got him on the record for a lot of things. Uh, You know, it was just uh, striking some of the answers to some of the questions. For example, he didn't realize that CEFC was affiliated with the Chinese government, uh, even though every big company in China is affiliated with the Chinese government. Uh, we realized that uh, he even though he and Hunter Biden took took in millions and millions of dollars from this Chinese uh, Communist Party backed entity called CEFC, uh, he never provided any meaningful services back to CEFC. Uh, we learned that uh, while Joe Biden was vice president, there was another diamond that was gifted to Hunter Biden. So he actually got two diamonds uh, from the Chinese, one while Joe Biden was vice president and one immediately after Joe Biden was vice president. And here's the opposite view from Congressman Jamie Raskin talking to reporters. As for today's um, transcribed interview with the brother of uh, President Biden, Mr. James Biden, um, we obviously, again, have heard nothing indicating that uh, Joe Biden had anything to do with the business ventures of Hunter Biden or um, James Biden. And uh, nothing has contradicted that basic understanding that we've had for many, many months now. So uh, that's essentially where we are. Again, I'm restating my call to Chairman Comer, to Speaker Johnson to fold up the tent Uh, to this circus show. It's really over at this point. Perhaps the way to start digging into this is with the interview that happened last week. The 420-page transcript of that is now available and has been digested somewhat. This is with Tony Bobolinsky, a former business partner. Kim, can you give us a sense of what Bobolinsky said and whether it shed any new light on Hunter Biden's business dealings? Yeah, absolutely. I think this Tony Bobolinsky interview is very important because it essentially confirms and adds some more detail 
to what is the broad story that's been coming out of this investigation. And if you listen to Raskin there and what a lot of Democrats and the media are saying is, well, if you do not have a direct financial link, you know, pieces of paper showing that Joe Biden financially benefited from these deals, then this investigation has been a flop. I think what, in in fact, the investigation has shown, which is equally concerning, is that there was a Biden family business and Hunter and James, his uncle, the president's brother, were financiers very involved in this business. And what they did was use Joe Biden's name to open doors. They used his presence on telephone calls and in meetings that they rolled him out for to leave the impression that he would be able to open doors, that he was involved, even though Joe Biden was kept at arm's length. And this is very much the tale Bob Alinsky tells. And he's interesting because he was one of the few people outside of the close-knit circle that Hunter and James had. He was brought in to help shepherd this deal with CEFC, the Chinese company that Comer referenced. He was there only for a few kind of consequential months, but he was able to explain how this worked. And he noted, for instance, that Joe Biden was out of office at this time. But as Hunter was setting up this deal with CEFC, there was a moment at which He was very deliberately, Tony Bobolinsky, introduced to Joe in a meeting in May 2017. He said it was very clear that he was there because they intended to sort of use his name and his reputation to get this deal together. And remember, this is all prelude to that infamous document where they talked about how equity would be divided in the CEFC deal. And there's a bit for Hunter and a bit for each of his partners. And then there's a reference to 10 held by H for the big guy. And Bob Alinsky makes very clear that at least at that period of time, everyone understood that the big guy was Joe Biden and that there had been plans, at least then, that he would, in fact, have some sort of stake or financial benefit from this. He claims that anybody who now is testifying to others or that they didn't know anything are are having convenient cases of amnesia. And again, I think it's really important because it explains that this business was very much operational, but there was a very strong premium on everyone understanding that Joe needed to keep an arm's length from any financial documentation of such. Here is that section of the Bobolinsky transcript. He says the H in that message is Hunter Biden and the big guy 100% is Joe Biden. And then the question is, why do you say that 100%? Bobolinsky replies, it's crystal clear there's nobody else who they would be listing as the big guy. Remember, this email was drafted to me with an expectation that no outside party, this wouldn't be part of congressional hearings. These guys are all low key. I was low key. Why is he using code? Why is he calling Hunter H? Why is he using the big guy? Well, because that's the way James Gilliar communicated because of his intel background and the things he was doing around the world, unquote. Bill, it seems to me that there's something of a conflict here between the pieces of the James Biden testimony that we have, including his opening statement. Here's a piece of it. He says, I have had a 50-year career in a variety of business ventures. Joe Biden has never had any involvement or any direct or indirect financial interest in those activities. None. And so it seems to me, Bill, that there is something that ought to be cleared up here because either one of these guys seems to be right or one of them seems to be wrong. Yes, Kyle, there's definitely a clear conflict. They can't both be right. Tony Bobolinsky is saying everyone knew 
Joe was the brand being sold. He even relates how he had a conversation, I believe, with James Biden, where he asked him, aren't you afraid that Joe will be implicated in this, you know, and it would damage him? And he said, well, the answer is plausible deniability. I think in this case, from what we learned, it looks like implausible accountability. But that said, the problem Republicans have, they haven't proved firmly that Joe Biden accepted money. I think there's plenty of evidence he did sleazy things. He enabled them to sell his brand, participated in business reasons, but he has a plausible deniability. I almost think it would just be a service for the House of Republicans to issue a report on what they know and let the voters decide. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more after a minute. Join the Wall Street Journal in New York City on June 6, 2024, for the inaugural Tech Live Cybersecurity to network and hear from leading cybersecurity experts across a variety of sectors on how to combat cybersecurity threats, mitigate crippling attacks, and safeguard privacy on the individual and organizational level. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. Set your calendars for another big hearing next week. That's when Hunter Biden is expected to sit for the House inquiry. I expect that will also be behind closed doors, not on the C-SPAN cameras, but presumably we will eventually get a transcript on that. And so, Kim, is that an interview that could potentially shed some more light and answer the question of, you know, if Bobolinsky is right that 10 held for the big guy, the big guy is Joe Biden? Or, I mean, is the real prospect here that given Hunter Biden's other legal troubles and the criminal cases that are being pursued against him, that we're probably going to get a bunch of taking the Fifth Amendment and not much else out of that? Well, just to be clear, one thing that Republicans did very wisely in all this, and although it's a feature of many investigations, is they lined up all the prior witnesses to get as much information as they could before they interviewed the big guys, as it were, James Biden, and now obviously Hunter. And I will predict that there are going to be some very, very hard questions for Hunter to answer at this point, questions that are going to come out of testimony that was provided by the IRS whistleblowers, those prior witnesses, some of the things we've talked about here, you know, who is the big guy who is H supposed to be holding that money for, you know, was he really sitting next to his dad when he sent the supposedly threatening texts to CEFC executives saying, you know, I'm here with my dad will destroy you if you don't pay up. But I am nonetheless less optimistic that good answers are going to come. Like you said, Kyle, one thing that really sticks out in these interviews that have been done so far with all of Hunter Biden's former colleagues. And while we haven't seen the James Biden transcript sounds from that Comer interview, it was similar, is just how much these guys now claim they didn't know or don't remember. I mean, it is quite remarkable that, you know, James Biden could say under oath that he had no awareness that CEFC was connected to the Chinese government, or that all of these former business colleagues could say they had no idea what anyone was talking about, how 10% of their equity would go to some guy that apparently no one knows who the big guy refers to. I mean, it, it sort of strains credulity. I expect to see 
some of that, though. If not, as you said, outright taking of the fifths for questions that may not be realistic to say, I don't remember, but could be incriminating if the real answers were provided. Bill, you suggested a moment ago that it might be a service if the outcome of this is not a vote to impeach, but a report that goes through the information that investigators have gathered. And generally, I think a lot of commentators are skeptical that that is the way this process ends up, because once you start the impeachment ball rolling, there is some political demand for it, and it becomes a a thing that is difficult to stop. But to your point, it is notable now that James Comer seems to be trying to temper expectations. These are some quotes he gave in an interview last week to Spectrum News. He says, I think the conference will get to see what happens with this Mayorkas impeachment in the Senate and how serious the Senate treats that as to whether or not we impeach Joe Biden over here or we just focus on holding him accountable. He said, at the end of the day, my goal is to get the truth out there and hold people accountable for wrongdoing that may encompass impeachment. If it doesn't, that's fine with me. And then he also made the point that the math for Republicans keeps getting worse. And that is interesting, I think, Bill, because we saw this recent vote to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary and Alejandro Mayorkas, and that passed by one vote. It was 214 to 213, and that was just before Congressman Tom Suozzi won re-election to his old district in that New York special election. So if they had waited a few days or weeks, they would have lost that one vote, and the Mayorkas impeachment would have failed for a second time. And so, Bill, I mean, interesting, maybe this sort of change of tact by Comer and company is in response to the information they've gathered, or some of it might be just a reflection of the political realities and how narrow that Republican majority in the House really is. Yeah, I think you're right that that's the decisive factor. They might not have the votes to do it, even if they wanted to. So that's a problem. Look, I always say the founders made impeachment very hard. And recently, we've seen to be turning into a vote of no confidence, you know, impeaching people, even when we know they'll be acquitted in the Senate, like Mayorkas, like Trump, the two times he was impeached. I don't think it's good to cheapen that. I will say, If the goal is impeachment, they may fall short. But I think they've unearthed a lot of information that's very useful. And I think the polls show that most people believe something corrupt was going on and Joe Biden knew about it. I mean, if he didn't, think of it. This guy prides himself on his foreign policy chops and how he knows everyone. He didn't know his own son is on the phone threatening Chinese figures if they don't turn over some money. He didn't know about all the stuff when he's giving Hunter Biden rides on Air Force Two. And again, I think it's not a bad solution to let the voters decide this. I think that's the way our system was founded. And as you say, these things can become a runaway train but it's still not a bad idea. Leave it up to the voters. Kim, is that your read of the politics here as well? There were a couple of no votes on the Mayorkas impeachment, including a serious guy, Mike Gallagher, congressman from Wisconsin, who said that his read of the impeachment clause was that you need actually a high crime and misdemeanor. You can't impeach somebody just for maladministration or policy differences. And given the evidence here, I wonder how many Republicans in the House are thinking that, you know, several months before the 2024 election, they don't want to be impeaching the president on the evidence that we have at hand. A couple of things here. First of all, I agree that there are some big questions for conservatives, those who 
claim to care deeply about law, order, tradition, standards, the Constitution, that we need to be very careful about stretching the bounds of impeachment. And I appreciate that there's a lot of retribution on people's minds these days, that a lot of folks are remembering in particular that first Trump impeachment, which arguably, well, should never have happened and seemed more of a political battle that Democrats were deciding to use impeachment rather than taking that case to the public. So I think there'd be good grounds, as Bill said, for them to do that. That's before you get to the math, which is getting harder. And that is a reflection of the politics. Look, there are a number of Republicans who you know, not only may disagree with this uh, notion on legal grounds uh, in terms of what counts as a high crime and misdemeanor, but they are in districts that are very, very narrowly divided. And if all they can bring to this coming election is, hey, I impeached a guy that maybe many people are still considering even reelecting this fall, or all I've done is this kind of impeachment, I haven't done any sort of policy or spending reform or any other kind of of work because we've been so focused on these investigations, that could be hard. I agree with Bill. It would be wiser for them to take what I think is a very compelling story at this time, that the Biden family has engaged in some very ugly use of the Biden family name that certainly smells like a form of corruption and put it to the voters if they want to continue having a guy in the White House whose family is using the Biden name to cash in around the globe. Hang tight. We'll be right back with one more break. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs, drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the Opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. A little more than a year after the Supreme Court's landmark ruling banning racial preferences in college admissions, that case was Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard. There is still litigation ongoing about how exactly that is going to apply. And Bill, a notable development this week when the Supreme Court declined to hear a case involving Thomas Jefferson High School, a magnet school in Northern Virginia. And you are versed on this case. You have written at least one column about it recently. The headline, if readers want to go find that, is The Sneaky Road Back to Racial Preferences in Admissions. And so can you give us a reminder of what this case was about and your reaction to the fact that the Supreme Court has decided not to take it up? First of all, I'll say I agree entirely with Justice Alito's dissent saying that the Supreme Court really shirked duty by not agreeing to hear this case. This case is about what was considered the best high school in the country by U.S. News and a couple of the places voted. It used to have a totally merit-based 
admissions. So it was mostly based on an exam. The result of that was heavily Asian, something like 70%. So the school district said that's too much. It doesn't reflect the racial balance of the district. So they moved to change it. What they meant by changing is we need fewer Asian Americans and more African Americans and more Latinos. But again, this is a school whose entry is based on merit. So they had to dilute that. And what they did was they came up with a very clever way to do it, even before the Harvard case. But Rather than have preferences like it appears Harvard, North Carolina did for some minority applicants, they allotted spaces to schools. In other words, so that the kids weren't competing against everyone and the top whatever number that they picked got in. They were competing in their schools. And the Asian Americans went to a few feeder schools. So by guaranteeing slots at all these other schools, They were able to do what they wanted, which is reduce the number of Asian Americans and increase the number of Latino and Black and I believe even white Americans. And so the question is, is that kosher? Some people think this is the way schools are going to get around the Harvard and North Carolina decisions that you referenced in your introduction, because they didn't address this. It's facially neutral, you know, choosing this formula based on schools, but you know the intent was directed at race. And Judge Alito said one of the arguments on the other side is that Asian Americans, sure, they went down, but they only went down like by a third. They were 72% and they went down to about 50% or something. So they lost a lot, but they still were disproportionately represented. And Justice Alito said, I guess the message is you can discriminate if it's not too severe. And I think it's a real tragedy. I think the way Asian Americans have been treated by the education establishment has been awful. There's all sorts of weird formulas designed to deny that they're minorities, like they don't count in some places because they're considered white adjacent. And it's, it's really ugly. To underline the point that Bill made, there are all sorts of ways that you can design admission systems including something like taking a top percent of every school. Texas famously has had that for almost three decades, the top 10% law. And obviously that has an effect on the distribution of students that get into the flagship schools in Texas and maybe a defensible way. Maybe state lawmakers say we want to make sure that rural students are not getting shut out, even though they don't have access to the kind of funds, the kind of private schooling that is available in the big cities. But what Justice Alito hones in on in this dissent is his lamenting that the Supreme Court has not taken this case is the element of targeting. So he says in June 2020, TJ students received an email from their principal lamenting that the school did not reflect the racial composition in Fairfax County. A member of the board wrote in an email that she was, quote, angry and disappointed, unquote, at TJ's admissions results and that she expected, quote, intentful action forthcoming, unquote. And Kim, it goes on from there. So that is, I think, part of what made this an interesting case 
is you can imagine a race-neutral, non-targeted admission policy come up in a state legislature for all kinds of reasons or in a county school board for all kinds of reasons. But what the Alito dissent is basically saying is you can't design a facially neutral policy with an intent to target based on race. And if the Supreme Court is not going to police that kind of stuff in the wake of the Students for Fair Admissions ruling, I tend to agree with Bill that we are just going to get a lot more of that. Yeah. I mean, look, what makes this case so egregious is they got caught. Okay, this is essentially intentional racism. And as Justice Alito said, we're going to pretend it's okay because it's not as severe as other forms of intentional racism. And that's why it's such an extraordinary pity that the Supreme Court decided to take a pass on this, because even before they had issued their decision on admissions policies in higher education, colleges and High schools around the country were watching this, predicting that they were going to clamp down on it some and already maneuvering to come up with different ways that might be able to get around that ruling so that they can continue doing things exactly as they were doing them before. And you would like to think that the Supreme Court has learned some lessons about the folly of issuing an opinion and then not issuing follow-up ones, not clarifying and not sending a continued message about the limits, because all it does is encourage more and more outfits to try to skirt and evade the law in an absence of extremely clear guidance on what is correct or incorrect. We saw this with the 2008 Heller case, which was a great victory for Second Amendment rights, which the Supreme Court then just ignored for about a decade as all kinds of communities around the country tried to come up with clever ways to get around the freedoms that had been established in Heller. So again, I'm with Bill. I think this is an egregious case. I think it was really a bad form of the Supreme Court, especially the conservatives on the court, to not follow up that strong decision that they made on racial preferences in higher education recently. Bill, we'll give you the last word, but as mentioned, there's this dissent from Justice Samuel Alito joined by Justice Clarence Thomas. And with the Supreme Court, there's always an element of trying to read between the lines. Where was Justice Neil Gorsuch when you need him to dissent or provide another vote to take this case? And remember, it takes four votes to take a case. So if you had Justice Gorsuch, that would be three. And then maybe Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Justice John Roberts. John Roberts has not been a squish on the point about race preferences, in my view. And if you look at a lot of his jurisprudence, particularly on the Voting Rights Act, And so it's hard to explain this result, I think, just looking at the jurisprudence of the people who are sitting on the court. But I guess my view is it probably will not take all that long for another case on race preferences in another school, maybe another state to come back up. And maybe that one will get a more favorable read. Yeah, there are already cases percolating that are based around the same issue in different ways. And as I understand it, some are even more egregious than Thomas Jefferson. So it will get there. Some of the thought is that the chief justice didn't want another incendiary opinion so soon after the first one, which was a landmark opinion. I mean, it really reversed 30 or 40 years of affirmative action. In some people's view, maybe the chief justice, that should settle before they riled the waters again. I don't think so. I have a view. I think they give a big decision, but there's a lot of question marks. The case you laid out 
about schools, what they're doing, picking up the schools. We need to draw the line, what's acceptable and what isn't. I think the court owes us that, and they failed in this case. I think that explains, if you read Alito, it's a very passionate defense. And the issue will be back, just like affirmative action itself. You know, so many times the Supreme Court had it and punted, but it always came back. This is going to come back. Thank you, Bill and Kim. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. And we'll be back next week with another edition of Potomac Watch. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.